Hi, my name is Maurice Bernard, and this is State of Mind. You may know me from my role on General Hospital, but what you might not know is that I've been a proud mental health advocate for over 30 years. State of Mind is a show where I speak about my mental health, my life with bipolar, anxiety, depression, and have guests who share about their life and their mental health. I hope that by listening, you can be inspired, learn about mental illness, and ways to have a healthy state of mind. All right. Um, so I have with me Vincent Irizarry, who he doesn't know, but I'm a, I am a fan of his. And I want to get into that as we talk. Why, how long I've been a fan of his. And uh, he's an Emmy-winning uh, actor, been on many soaps. Uh, but the main thing that, oh, now I'm going to, tell the whole story but he did a, a movie called heartbreak ridge mm-hmm. among many other things that he probably beat me out for uh <laughs> uh yeah anyway how you doing man i'm doing great man i'm doing great you know and but i will say this i've also been a very big fan of yours for many many years oh, and thanks, man. and i even wrote this to you that you kicked ass on that um desi you know, oh. Arnaz role. That, I mean, that's hard to do a role like that when it's somebody that's so no, known, recognizable. And you did so well on that, man. I was fucking blown away by it. Excuse me, I lots of curse. You can curse. Okay, sure. Say. Okay. Um, I'm not going to be bleeped out or anything. No. Like that. No, I was. I was blown away by that. And you got to work with Francis. I've known Francis for 40 years, actually, Francis Fisher. Yeah, Francis. Yeah. L- l- this is cool. This is a cool talk. Yeah. I'm going to be honest. Okay. Okay. And I know I'm supposed to say thank you. Yeah. But I didn't. Everybody seemed to think I was really good. And and I what I think was Francis was phenomenal. Yes, you did a great job. And I was did a great job at impersonating. Mm -hmm. There was supposed to be three a mini mini series of three of them. Oh, wow. Okay. If I were to do Desi now, I know. uh, What's his name? Yeah, I know. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. He's doing the thing. Yeah. But if I were to do it now, I it, Javier Bardem. Yeah. Yeah. Javier Bardem. Great actor. I would do it deeper and this and that. Sure. But it but you know what's the funny thing is? First of all, um that job almost got me Philadelphia. Oh wow. Because the casting director said, Oh, you you took no prison, you were dead. You talk like that. And yeah. I came very close, but you know, wow. whatever. Um, and th- that's what I said. Oh, thank you. Thank you. But inside I'm going, oh, you're wrong, man. But you know, but isn't that uh, us, that inner voice yes. that we're overly critical yes. of ourselves and we, we're not as objective as I guess as others that are watching. I get you. Um, so certainly, and especially when you look in retrospect at something, it's hard for me to watch things that I did many years ago. It's really difficult for me yeah. to watch. I, I, it's, and even like my girlfriend, Yvonne, she'll say, oh, we got to watch this sometime. You know, Lucky Chances, the movie I did. Many oh, you, did. that's the one I think yeah. you, I auditioned for. I, Lucky Chances. It was a three-part miniseries. And I got, Sandra Bullock was my wife. Nicholas no! Sharon, my yeah. It was Michael Nader, he was my nemesis yeah, Michael in it. Nader. Um, you know, Eric Braden was in it too. That's why I first knew Eric. Was it a mafia thing? Yeah, it was a mafia thing. Yeah, it was a mafia. It, was, it took place during the, um, the speakeasy times, you know, the, the, the right. 20s. Started there, but it, I aged 
64, 40 years from 24 to 64 in 11 different increments throughout the whole three hour miniseries, six hour wow. miniseries, wow. Um, three parts. And um, it was a lot, but it's hard for me to watch things uh, from the past like that because I'm, I'm hypercritical. I even like cringe when I'm watching yeah, some yeah, scenes. Yeah, I'm like, yeah. oh, yes. Yeah. It's tough to watch it. Even though people watch it, they don't feel that way no. as I do, but I'm looking with a much more critical eye. And yeah. I would do it differently today if I had of the course. opportunity to do it. Of course. So, yeah, so I get it. But it's funny, there was years ago, there was an audition that we had that I ran into you at, at the studio. I think it was at Universal in one of the casting offices there. And I believe it was for a Kevin Pollack movie that yes! he was producing he was producing, he was producing. this was like in the mid 90s or I something like yeah. that and i and i remember walking into the uh, audition room and seeing you and to myself go fuck Maurice Bernard's here <laughs> i swear that's that was my action i'm going okay but apparently we both didn't get it so no. there you go no um, and he was there he was there yeah he was in the room there i remember a monologue and we had to do a monologue right. for him that's right. I thought I nailed that. But yeah, there you go. Well, there you go. I probably did too. I probably thought I did too. But it's fun. So you play piano. Yes. Tell me about that. Because my let me tell you, my my son Josh. I know everybody feels, but my son, he he's self-taught piano player. Oh wow, that's awesome. And guitar, and he sings. And now he's this week he's uh, meeting with two sets of producers that are going to record a song. Fantastic. It's great. No, he's he's special. He is very, and he's an actor that I yeah. taught at thirteen. Yeah, and he did a monologue for me at thirteen, and I and I said, "Holy shit, yeah. he's the next James Dean." I really felt that. That's awesome. So now yeah. he's seventeen. Yeah. So tell me about piano. I don't know why I want to know, but I do. I always loved music, and you know, I grew up during the age of the Beatles when they came yeah, out, I and I was. Me you know, going and buying the 45s when they came out yeah. right away, you know, it's like, hello, goodbye, or whatever it may have been at the time. My mother and father bought me a cassette player, and it was one of it was the, one of the cassettes was The Doors, the other was um, uh, Diana Ross introduces the Jackson 5, Michael Jackson, Jackson 5, and the other one, there was one other one that was there. Um, I can't remember what it is right now. But I just loved music, and when I was like 11 years old, I went to a friend's house uh, for the first time in Long Island. He was also 11, 12 years old, and he played um, on his Hammond B3 organ. Leslie Speaker sat down and played Bach's Staccato Fugue in, in E minor, and blew me away. It was like, blew me away. Um, his feet could barely touch the pedals because it was an organ. Um, and I went home and I told my parents, I said, I said, I want to, I want to study piano. Um, and my father said, okay. Um, Cause there was a piano teacher around the block that I heard of, it was $10 per lesson. He said, okay, we can do that, but you have to um, find a place to practice. And I'm like, well, what are you talking about? I, I would need a piano if I'm gonna study piano. He goes, well, we're not gonna pay for a piano where it sits in the house and then it's like three months later you don't want to play anymore and it becomes a piece of furniture right and he said if you really want to do it you'll find a way to make it happen so it turned out that there was a, a family around the block from me that i was friends with three daughters a mother and three daughters i was friends with two of the daughters they were closer to my age very close friends with them and they the father had just passed away okay just a couple months before he had a heart attack at 40 years old playing softball up the street and I was there at the house when the police came to tell the mother that he had died. And she asked me to go get my friend Diane, her daughter, 
who was at her boyfriend's like a mile away. I went to walk there to get her, bring her home to hear this news that her father had passed away. So I thought about it. She had a piano in the house, which was sitting there as a piece of furniture. Nobody was playing it. So I knew that she needed help. Um, so I asked, I went to her one day and I said, listen, I will mow your lawn every week, okay? And I will shovel your driveway in the winters, okay? And then, and I'll even throw in vacuuming your pool every every week as well if I can practice on your piano at least three times a week. And she was overjoyed with that. She was overjoyed with that. She said, absolutely. Um, so that's what I did for a whole for a year and a half. I did that every week. I was doing all of this there, and because did you I have was a pressing, teacher, I had a teacher around the block. They're on oh. the block, the guy. So I was taking lessons. He, my parents oh. were paying the ten dollars for that. And then you would practice, and I would go and practice, and then have my lessons after that. And um, because I was practicing in the house, the daughters then started taking lessons. Okay, so it sort of like enlivened the family wow. with music there too. Wow. Um, and it was a year and a half later, my parents had not heard me play piano at all. Never one one note on the piano. And one day my father said, look, I want you to come with us. It was a Saturday. Come, we're doing some errands. I want you to come. And I'm like, why the hell do I have to go drive around on a Saturday? I was just, you know, 12 years old kid, 13 year old kid going driving around my parents on a Saturday. I'd rather be doing a lot of other things. So we're driving and all of a sudden he pulls into this piano store on Long Island. Pulls in and says, okay, let's go see what you can learn. So I went inside, sat down at this Yamaha piano, upright piano, sat down and started playing. Played some classical, played some blues, some jazz, some ragtime. And I turn around, my mother's crying. Oh, man. And my father says to me, do you like this piano? And I said, it's great. It's a great piano. It's a Yamaha. And he says, okay, well, it's yours. You've earned it. So they oh, bought man. me that piano. And we had that piano in my house up until just a few years ago when they moved to Florida and they, they finally sold it. They wanted me to have it and sell it. And I'm like, no. So it, where I, did the piano take you? Like what after you learned as a young boy, yeah. did you pursue any? Did you try? To yeah. You know, it's interesting because this is when in ninth grade, I remember a guidance counselor coming to our class and speaking to us. And he was encouraging us to find something now in ninth grade is to find something now that you're excited about, that you that you have some kind of a passion for, a desire for that you might want to pursue in the future. Because wow. he said those these high school years are going to go quickly. And before you know it, right. college years are coming. And too many kids come to that 12th grade and they have no idea what they want to do with their lives. None. And he said, and some of them go into college for liberal arts and then that's done. And they find themselves in jobs that they that they never really wanted or desired. So he encouraged us to do that. And I thought of that and it really resonated with me. And I thought, yeah, music for me, that's it. That's what I really want to do right now. So it gave me a discipline, a focus at that time, at those years. And it was a good thing for me because in some ways it was a saving grace for me because it was kind of a destructive period of my time, my life at the time. I can honestly say that, um, you know, I mean, I grew up in the 60s and the 70s was the whole drug culture. Was, yeah. Or, yeah. So that was the part of it. So this at least gave me a, a focus and a discipline so that I didn't go too far deep into the explore, exploratory yeah. period of that, of that, that age. Um, what was the drugs? Was that a lot of, lot of weed, a lot of cocaine? I would say pretty much everything. I had everything at the time. I just drank. <clears throat> I did that too. But I would say this, I mean, I've always had a wonderlust, you know, a, a, a lust for life, a, a 
um, a desire to acquire life experiences yeah. that have a life fully lived. Yeah. Which is a good thing, but it also can lead to a destructive decisions that you've made in yes. your life. And that certainly was happening around that time. Um, I did pretty much everything. Wow. Um, shot up heroin. Once. No. Tried that once. Yeah, I did it once. Wasn't for me in the East Village. I was living in an apartment with a few other people that were doing it regularly, and I decided to try it. Um, and I just didn't like it. I How didn't like it. It was like it was like on the nod, you know. It's like it's sort of like just doped out. Yeah. And I'm like, this is not for me. But they say when you do it, it feels it feels feel euphoric. Like... That's what yeah. they say. I, I could see them say that, but it wasn't for me. Well, that's, that's not great. my thing. That's great. You no, know? that it wasn't. For um, me. Yeah, absolutely. But I would say that the thing that helped me again, music was definitely that for me. And I would say then it, that was replaced by acting, frankly. And when I was at college, Berkeley College of Music, um, studying there, I was becoming really introverted um, because I was studying piano in a piano room the size of me and the piano, you know, six foot room for six hours a day, you know. And I'd walk out of there and I and I became very antisocial. I was like, was it my own little world? You know, I'd be Ooh, the guy in yeah. the elevator with my head down, not wanting to connect with anybody. And it was uh, I became very close friends with my English teacher, um, a guy named Rylan Brenner. Um, I know him as Bren. And he was he had a theater company that he was doing. He was a post beat poet and I was writing poetry. So he that's how we connected. And he asked me if I ever thought about acting. And I said, you know what? I've loved movies my whole life. My brother Frankie and I used to sneak downstairs to watch the Late Show, the Late Late Show, right. At, you know, right in front of the TV. So the volume was down. Our parents didn't know what we were doing. We'd watch movies with Cagney and, you know, Cary Grant and all of them, you know, Jimmy Stewart. I loved acting, loved movies. And I thought, you know, it's one of those things that I've always had an interest, a curiosity about. I was 17, oh, I think, shit. at the time. I was in college, so 17, 18. And I was like... um, I've always had a, a desire, a, a, an a interest about curiosity, but never got off my ass to do anything about it. Well, I'm 17 years old, so I didn't have the time yet. But he invited me to audition for this play. It was called Death Watch. It was Jean Genet, one act play, three person play. And it was a very intense, dramatic play. It was three guys in a jail cell together. And my character was crazy. Uh, winds up killing somebody, one of the cellmates at the end of the movie, end of the play. And I never, I didn't know how to approach it. And it was before Christmas break. So I took the play, went home, and at my parents' house where I used to live, I was in my bedroom and I was reading out all the lines out loud. I was acting out every role, you know, upstairs. And I, my, I could tell my parents thought I was going crazy yeah, up there. Crazy. And that's what I was doing. I was like, how else do I approach that? I didn't have right. acting lessons or anything. Right. So I did it. I just was familiarizing myself with each role and trying to, breathe life into the, each character. And I went and I got the part and I did the same thing in Boston. And when I was um, on my own, there was one of my friends had the dormitory that was, you can climb out the window onto the roof of this bank that was right next to Berkeley College of Music. And I was going on that roof, acting out the entire play, but for people in the apartment, <laughs> they probably thought I was a madman across wow. the street, but that's what I was doing. And I fell in love with the process. And for me, it was, um, it really was kind of, again, a saving grace because to be able to express myself yeah. emotionally yeah. on that level in yeah. front of people opened me up. It yeah. absolutely yeah. opened me up. Yeah. And I just fell in love with the whole process of breathing life into words and putting flesh on characters like this. I thought it was when studied pathologies and it was freaking awesome. So you and I have a, something in common. Yeah. 
you uh, you got a scholarship for Lee Strasberg. Right, Lee Strasberg. I'm a member of the Actors Studio. Oh, you are? Fantastic. Yeah. That's how I know Francis, actually. Nah. Francis, Francis Fisher played Lucy in Lucy right. Desi. Francis is a member also of the Actors Studio, and I was a finalist two years running um, for the Actors Studio. And that's when I first met her. I was like 21, 22 years wow. old. And she and I dated actually for a couple oh, of really? Yeah, for many, many, many years ago. So, um, but she she actually did one of the scenes with me. That um, we did a scene. I did a scene for Modigliani, right? Um, with her, um, yeah. So that's that was from the actors' studio. So that's speaking of Francis Fisher. Another thing we have in common: you work with Clint Eastwood, right? She has a child with right. Clint, right? That's true. You see that? Yeah. You're Puerto Rican. I'm Puerto Rican and Italian. Italian. I'm from Nicaragua and San Salvador. Oh wow! Okay. So you, it, are you from there? You were no, born my, there? no, my, my dad, your heritage. Okay. Yeah. My yeah. dad just passed away actually a couple months ago. And my my mother is 100% Sicilian. Really? My, yeah. My father is Puerto Rican, Ukrainian, and Basque. My last name is a Basque name. Um, Northern Spain, Southern France. Yeah. Um, Do you speak Spanish? South. I don't speak Spanish. I speak Italian. Oh, you speak Italian. Yeah, I speak Italian, but I don't speak Spanish. No. Yeah. So let's talk about... Well, I just... Uh, let me yeah, finish something because we were talking about the whole thing about acting and music being a saving grace for me and it really was it was a salvation for me because of the focus the discipline it gave me during those destructive yes exploratory periods of my life where it really did i had an epiphany it was on easter sunday actually um in new york city i was living in that apartment with a bunch of people and one of them actually had od'd i had to call the ambulance and um they took him out and I was out. I had been um, I had been working as an actor in Boston through that theater company. I started doing other plays in Boston. And it was very easy for me in Boston because if it was a role that I was right for, I'd go up for it. And it was maybe like five people, six people going up for it. You know, right. I did a Moliere play. I did a few other no coward play. And I fell in love with it. When I came to New York, it was a totally different thing. I remember my first audition was from backstage and it was for an industrial film and it said 18 to 21 handsome shy but courageous and i thought okay handsome subjective you know whatever they'll they, they'll decide whether i'm handsome enough but i can be shy but courageous i was certainly right. within the age range so i went to this audition feeling cocky this is gonna be my thing this is great first thing i could get in new york i walk up the street to the street that i'm supposed to turn i turn the corner and it's like 500 guys standing on the street all of them handsome, shy, but courageous. And I'm going, totally different wow. thing. Took like two hours to get through the line to get in the audition. I was terrible. Yeah. I was so nervous. It was an eye opener for me. And I finally, after that, I was I got a part at a place called 13th Street Theater in Greenwich Village. And I was I actually wound up living there at the theater for six months, I was sleeping in the dressing room every every night. Uh, because I was helping with lights, and it was the way I was doing what I could to just keep focused. What about work acting? Did you work doing? Well, I did. I was working as a waiter at a place called Riviera Cafe in Greenwich Village, and um, so I was working doing that, living in the theater for free, but helping out in the theater. But before I got the part there at Thirteenth Street Theater, I had to meet the director on Easter Sunday for Taming of the Shrew. And I was so nervous, and I was out all night with friends, drinking, partying, crazy. 
and even wound up doing some shooting up some speed to keep myself awake. Um, and I I crashed in this apartment with everybody strewn out all over the floor. And I woke up after my appointment and I called him and I told him that my car broke down. I lied to him. And he didn't believe me. Um, I went home and I looked at myself in the mirror and I was like, this can't be what I was created for. This cannot be. Mm -hmm. I can't go this route. This is not going to be beneficial, healthy for me. And I know that it was created for something better than this. It was an epiphany. I literally had this eye-opening moment right then, and I stopped everything. I, I stopped drugs. Wow. I didn't do anything after that. And I went that day, I went across to the village. I was living in the East Village. I got a job there at Riviera Cafe. There was somebody that was subletting their apartment for three months in the village on Grove Street. I took her place. I literally moved away from the friends that I had there, moved over there, and started focusing more on my acting and just like, you know what? Now's the time to put, that was a, that was a period of youth. Now it's the time to grow up, you know? Yeah. Because I always felt the world doesn't stop turning waiting for you to get on. This is, this yeah. is your moment. Right. I was 19, 20 years old, 20. I was 20, 21 years old at the time. I was 21, actually. Um, and there were other things that came to me at 21 years old, too, that where my childhood was concerned. Um, you know, my parents, I have great respect for my parents. Um, they eloped at 15 years old, 16 years old. They're still together today, 83, 82, 83 years old. They have six kids. We have, I think, 11 grandchildren now and two great-grandchildren. They're my granddaughters. Um, but it was tough growing up as a kid, you know. Um, How about discipline with them? That your dad is my well, my father was Navy, so he was very kind of authoritarian in that respect. Yes, very disciplinarian. Yeah, and, and you know, it was a different time. It was like you know, spare the rod, spoil the child I know, type I thing. Know, and I, I know, and I, so I grew up with certain resentments towards that about mm -hmm. the way that my father was with me growing mm -hmm. up as a kid. Um, you know, not need to get into too too much, yeah. but it was definitely, but some of it was provoked by me. I was rebellious. I wow. was, I had. I, I and I felt and I look back in, in reflection on that and thinking the reason I was that way was because I was asserting my own individuality, you know, and saying that I have a right to be who I am. Right. So I was clashing with him constantly. It happened a lot. But the thing for me that like really, that made the biggest difference for me was, again, when I was 21, it dawned on me that they were 21 when they had me. I was their third child. And I was like. I wasn't mature enough to raise a dog at that time. And yet they were children raising children, doing the best they could, yeah. you know, with what they had learned from the, their you know, parents before them. And I, it just opened up a whole it, so a wave of, of understanding, respect and forgiveness for them, for, for the things wow. that I was struggling with in my life right. at that time, you right. know. Um, but it, and it was great. And I, as I said, I love my parents and I, my, I, we have a very close knit family, all my brothers and sisters. And I remember Jim Warren asked me in one of those things that he asked you to um, answer right. questions for the, and he asked me, who, who are your heroes in life? And I told him, I wrote down, I said, my heroes are my brothers and sisters, and my family, without question. My brothers and sisters, they've been there for me during my darkest times, most difficult times. I always know that I can count on them to be there as I would be for them. We're a very close family, and I'm very grateful for that. I feel very blessed. See, I say my hero is my father. 
Yeah. I really mean that. And my parents too. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And that's. But you say brothers and sisters, which is interesting. Mm -hmm. That's cool. I like that. And my, my, my family, yeah. all, you know, without question, they all are. And I feel that connection with them. And I hope that's the same with my children. I have four kids and they're wonderful, wonderful kids. Very different. All of them in nature yeah. and personalities. Um, and um, inclinations, <laughs> they all are very different, but they're all wonderful. Well, I got four kids. Yeah, oh, really? Two boys, two girls. Yeah. Three girls. Uh, no, no, wait a minute. Yeah, three <laughs> girls. Oh, shit, I almost <laughs> forgot. Let me help you. Let me look, let me look up your <laughs> Wikipedia. Let me, I'll let you know what you have. <laughs> three funny. girls and one boy. Um, funny. Yeah, you know, kids are the, and I got two grandkids. Man. Yeah, me too. Two granddaughters. Dude, you and I are like. I know. You are like the mirror version of each other. It kind that's, of that's the kind Latino of part of things. Yeah, as well. because I was going, you know, I was going to make a whole joke thing. Like, we got a lot in common, you know, like you're Puerto Rican. I'm from Nicaragua. You got an yeah. Emmy. I got an Emmy. Well, you've got more than one Emmy. So yeah. <laughs> you've got several. I think I was even nominated one year with you. And I was oh, like, oh, really? well, this is. Dumb. Oh, I lost. Yeah, it. what's the point? I must have lost. I, I think lost. He, I, I, maybe you did. I think Peter Bergman. <laughs> I think Peter Bergman won. <laughs> I lost a lot. Uh, yeah, well, listen. I, I need to talk about Clint Eastwood, man. Yeah, because at that time, there's a there's a few more things I want to say that we'll you know get into it. But I was at that time. I'd been in L.A. and struggling. And, I'd done Desi, but after Desi, nothing happened. Yeah. Wow. And that's around the time you got, you did uh, Heartbreak. Heartbreak Ridge. And, and I was like, damn, that's fucking cool. Yeah. And I was a little, 86. I was jealous. Okay. Okay. I was it's great to work with Clint, man. Yeah. It was, awesome. I mean, you were, you were young. Tell me, tell me. Four, 25. Uh, right. Yeah, I was 25. Was in, I think it was, sorry, it was 86 is when it Okay. It. How was the whole thing? You auditioned? It was crazy because I auditioned. I was put on tape at Warner Brothers for the role of Forgetti. I was put on tape and I didn't hear anything for months. Okay. And I thought, well, I didn't get that, obviously. I got another, I was doing a, a movie of the week they used to call it, MOV. Um, I was doing it in Vancouver called Firefighter with Nancy McCann. And I was playing the male lead in that. And um, I was up there in Vancouver for like a month, three weeks to a month. And I get a call while I'm there from my agent says, you got Heartbreak Ridge. I'm like, what are you talking about? That was like months ago. Well, Clint was running for mayor of Carmel yeah. after I did the audition. And they said, well, because he was running for mayor, he had just won the mayoralship the day before. He said, well, now that he's the mayor of Carmel, he's finally able to sit down and look at the tapes. And you got the part. And I'm like, holy crap, that's great. Wow. So they said, you're finishing Firefighter on this day. You're going to have to fly back to L.A. and get your clothes together, pack it up, and go to San Clemente because we're shooting down at uh, Camp Pendleton. Right. So it literally was that kind of a quick thing. I left Vancouver, flew to L.A., washed my clothes, packed up, and the next morning drove down to San Clemente to go to the hotel. And then they took us to uh, Camp Pendleton. And it was... It was probably the best summer job I've ever had. It was freaking awesome working with Clint wow. and uh, working on that set. He's he's an amazing director, amazing uh, person. He was so wonderful, so gracious with everybody. 
I mean, he literally was like, we had a, a 30 extras on a set one day. He'd be walking through after lunch, asking people, how was it? Was the food okay? Everything good? You know, checking everybody yeah. out. The only time that I ever saw him kind of lose his patience and get, he seemed uptight, really stressed out, was a day that um, the Flying Tigers, do you remember Flying Tigers? They used to, because everything was 35 millimeter film. So when you finished filming, you had to send that film Right to right. the studio, and it was through the Flying Tigers. That was an air airline okay. that they used to fly everything. We were on the island of Vieques filming down there. Um, it was supposed to be Grenada, filming down there, and they had lost a reel of film. Okay, they couldn't find it, so that would change the shutdown production. There were people that were working that couldn't work again. They, we'd have to reshoot the things that wow. we did. No, we so he we were shooting that day, and I could tell he was definitely stressed out. Thankfully, they found the film, so it wasn't an issue. But there were several moments that I remember with Clint. One, we were in Vieques. We were all hanging out at this outdoor bar with him, having drinks. And we all convinced him, Mario Van Peebles, all of us, we convinced him to do his monologue from Dirty Harry, you know, if you're lucky, punk. Oh, that's the greatest. So, so he did it for all of us there. We were like, oh, man, it was freaking wow. awesome. That was awesome. That was awesome. Another thing I remember was very cool. Um, he, we were shooting in Camp Pendleton in this, this arid area, kind of desert land, and it was a group scene. It was like about maybe twelve people in a circle shooting, and all of a sudden he calls cut, and the scene was going great. Calls cut, and everybody's looking like, why we cut? And in the crew, like, cut. he walks away from everybody, walks over to the craft services, and there's a, a box that he rips off a piece of a box, and he comes back. And there's a, an insect in the middle of all of us in the thing. And he scoops up the insect and he walks about 20 feet away from the crowd and puts it back down. He comes walking back. He goes, we're all God's creatures. <laughs> like, this is the same guy's like, you feel yeah, lucky, right, punk? Right. I'm like, that was, I was like, wow, that's interesting. That was really funny. So he great. didn't want the little insect to get. Yeah, in case we walked over it, man. He went and carried that's it like up. That's like my It's really that. like yeah. that. And the other thing that was very cool is that I was nominated that year for Guiding Light for Lou Jack. Um, and the Emmys were happening while we were filming. And they he restructured scheduling for the filming so that I could fly to New York and be there for the Emmys, which is pretty cool. That's very cool. And now he does, he doesn't do a lot of takes, right? He doesn't. He does, it's like one, two takes the most. The best. And even with, even with the camera, the, the, the cinematographer, Jack Green was the cinematographer at the time. And even if he wanted to do it again for the lighting or something else, he would go, no, it's all right. We'll fix it in the soup. And it's like, we're moving on. We're moving on. That's cool. Man. He, and But, you know, working with the discipline of working in daytime, yeah. that was not a problem. You know, you, yeah. I remember my first film that I did was with uh, Sissy Space. I was going to ask Marie. you about Sissy Space. Yeah, it was the first one I did. And I remember going that. I was doing Guiding Light at the time, Lou Jack. And. They weren't going to let me out to go do it. But then Dino De Laurentiis called Gail Colby, the executive producer, and, and asked her, can you please let him out for a few days to come down? And she was like, how do I say no to Dino De Laurentiis? How was she, man? <laughs> Sissy Spacek. She was wonderful. That, this she is after wonderful. Carrie, obviously. This was after Carrie. This was after Carrie. This is, she had already won one. for Coal Miner's Daughter. She had already won two. Yeah, she, had, she won for Coal Miner's Daughter already. And she was great. She was great. I had this very... Uh, uh, he was an abusive husband. It was a true story. Um, and it, it was a really, it was a crazy scene. Roger Donaldson directed it, who also directed No Way Out. Yeah, yeah. Things. He directed, he was wonderful. 
And I just had to throw her around all over the place one day. You know, it was a crazy scene. It's the opening scene of the movie. It's really intense. Um, but she was wonderful. And I've got this great picture of the two of us. Maybe I'll send it to you guys. Yeah, oh, that would be great. Of me with her stunt double, and I'm holding them both up by their ponytails, and I got a cigarette dangling from my mouth, and they both got blood dripping out of their nose. But it was, you know, it's acting. It's not yeah, didn't yeah. really happen. But we we loved it. We loved working with each other. It was great. When you got into acting, I want to talk to you about this. I don't know if you had the same experience I had, but um, did when I got into acting, I was 21. I tried to be a model, didn't work, and then I. I tried to be an actor, and then I was in a mental institution. Okay. Okay? All right. And then, so my hometown, and I hate to talk about all the time, because my hometown's going to be like, shut up already with us. <laughs> but yeah. they just didn't, nobody really believed in me, man. Yeah. The only one that really believed was my mom. Yeah. My dad, he did eventually, but he would just give me the money yeah. to go to get pictures, to modeling school. If you can yeah. believe that. But it's a, I, I think a lot of the, a lot of the reason why I was in the mental institution was because of that, mm. because of that kind of pressure. Mm. When you know inside you that you can do it, yeah. but nobody. You didn't feel the confidence of others around you. Right. How, how was your experience? My experience was different in this respect is that when I was at music college, I decided to withdraw from music college to pursue acting because I really, as I said, for me, it was like it opened up my opened me up emotionally and I, I loved it. I fell in love with the process. Um, and that was really hard for me to call my parents to tell them that I was leaving college to do this. Mm -hmm. um, I was there for two years. It was, I think it was my third, my fourth semester. Um, and I called them up not knowing how they were going to react. Um, and they were both, this is your life. We want you to pursue whatever you think your dreams are at the time. Just go all out in it, into it. So they were always very encouraged. Um, and I remember the first time that my father came to see me in a play. In, it was Taming of the Shrew, actually, the play that I wound up doing at 13th Street Theater. And he was totally blown away by it by the fact that I was able to do what I did yeah. on stage. But know? what about like friends and people? But you're in New York. I was in a small. Yeah, like, totally different. Totally different. New York, it's it's everywhere LA's, around you. Yes. It's everywhere around you. You got the theater that's there and everything. Right. You know, I did something at the public theater. Then I did play Paul McCartney on stage and play called Lennon, which was great because it fused my music abilities with my acting. Um, you know, I got to, everything was live music. We did 40 songs. So, you know, songs. it's amazing that where you're living, that's going to affect Absolutely. what we're talking about. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting that there was one other guy that I performed in the play Death Watch with, who was at Burke Belgian Music. He was terrified to tell his parents that he was acting. He loved it. He was really talented, really great in the play. He was terrified because he knew his father, his, he told his mother, and she even said, if you tell your father that you're acting and you think about going to acting on music, he'll probably disown you. He literally, she literally said that to him. So talking about no support. That's but tough. That's, that's tough. tough. Yeah, so yeah. he was like even feeling guilty that he was acting that's at the time, yeah. you know, but I never had that experience. And I, I, I'm grateful for that. The only areas of, of, uh, where I didn't feel like I had support was coming from within. <laughs> there were times of self doubt, you know, where I questioned myself and my abilities. Yeah. 
I mean, those inner voices in your yeah, head, you know, yeah. sort of like spitting poison at you at times, poison darts. That's where I've had at different times throughout my career. I mean, and it's interesting because then I remember seeing a documentary on Lawrence Olivier and that he, he, he in his 60s, started having really bad stage fright that he would like have to he'd throw up before he went out on stage. I'm like, yeah, yeah. Lawrence Olivier, wow. you know, yeah. one of the great actors of his time that he went through this. And that's, you know, uh, that's mental, obviously, um, something going on there. And but how do you? How do you stand up to it? There are times that, you know, some of us have crutches, you know, whatever those crutches yeah. may be. Yeah. And they're not always in the best interest in the long run. Right. But um, or that you find ways to overcome that and you do it. You just forge you face, forward. You face it. And, you, yeah. yeah. You forge forward and do what you have to do. Um, it's tough. So that's wonderful that you overcame all of that, <sighs> that you did it. And you've, and you've had such an incredibly successful career. I mean, it's your career is envious. Uh, absolutely. Yeah, you know, with mental illness, to have to to have to act even now, brother. I'll, yeah. I'll be because this just happened, so I'll, you'll be the first. Because I've talked to other people, but not you know, I, acting is very uh, with things. I've acted with anxiety. It's the <laughs> it is like. I don't know how I even get to get it out, right? But just Friday, I was on the set and went ballistic a little bit. Really? And what happens inevitably, because I've, I've lost my stuff a lot in the past, because I used to be darker early on. Now I'm more relaxed and lighter, and I've been through a lot of stuff. Yeah. But for whatever reason, I blew up on the set, and, and what happens is my, my, you know, my hand shakes and it's terrible. And then, and then I got to do four, five, eight more scenes. Right. Yeah. And to act from that is very difficult and painful. Sure. Right. Absolutely. But always the acting's better. Sure. Yeah. Because you're like a raw nerve. Right. That's exactly right. You're just literally, you're there in the moment. You feel what you're feeling. And it shows even on your expressions. Right. Your face. You can't help exactly. it. Exactly. You know? It's there. You know. But even now, I'm getting emotional because yeah. there's a shame that happens. Sure. And afterwards, I yelled at some people. Mm -hmm. And I feel like I don't feel good about it. No, of course and not. Then, uh, and then, and it's, it's, and like my psychiatrist says, you know, because I talked to him about it, and he's like, "Why do you yell at people?" I said, "Cause I want I want to get what I want," mm -hmm. and then I get upset. And he goes, "But you know, you you, you scare people." Mm -hmm. I said, "Well, I don't like to scare people." He says, "Well, the reality is you're only hurting yourself." Right. And that scares me because the only thing that scares me in my life is anxiety. Hmm. That Freddy Krueger that comes down and says. I'm here. And it's overwhelming too. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. No, I get that too. I do. I have to deal with anxiety sometimes too. It's yeah, like you that. get it. I do. Not, and it, it's not something that I'd say is a chronic issue, but I've gone through periods, especially over the last year, where I've had some, some major anxiety that's weighing upon me. And for me, it manifests in that it's difficult for me to sleep. I know, I really, man. I wake up in the night and then I'm awake. Yes. Three hours after I fell asleep and my mind is racing, yes. racing and I can't like stop it. 
that's that's for me how anxiety manifests itself within me yeah and then i feel the next day i feel like i'm like part of the walking dead i feel you know i right. feel out of it i'm that's just right like in a brain fog you know so what do you do to sleep what what have you honestly um the something over the last year happened that was so stressful and so intense that um i for the first time i've never I've never done before. I contacted my doctor and he prescribed a very small dose of Xanax. Xanax, bam, man. And I was like, okay. And it was like in my girlfriend, Yvonne, she said to me, she goes, the good thing about Xanax is you take it, the feelings are still there, but you just don't give a shit. <laughs> it's like that kind of thing. I said, really? So that's, I've had to take that a few times over the last year. And I've never been one, especially after my drug life periods, I've never been one to like, like overly depend upon something. So I mean, he prescribed that to me a year ago, and I probably still have more than half of yeah. what was prescribed to me. Yeah. But occasionally, when I feel it, I know I know before I go to bed what's in my head, what's happening. If I feel that sense of intensity that's there, I know I'm not going to get a good night's sleep. I know that I have to take something, so I'll just take one. That's all. And it's a low dose, but it's something for me. It helps, you know. No, no. Yeah. Let me tell you something. Xanax is great. What happened with me with, during the pandemic, and, and I've talked about it like 20,000 times, but it was horrific. Okay, was, I won't get into it again because now I think people are like, okay, you've said it yeah. 25,000 times. But I couldn't, I wasn't sleeping for four months. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And I didn't because I was in this anxiety ridden, I mean, I was shaking and all kinds of stuff that when I would sleep, I'd wake up every hour like that so i now now i'm afraid to go to sleep yeah yeah that's the worst right that's it, yeah because now you do you have to sleep. you're anticipating what's what's uh, the pattern that you right. continually go through. exactly and i was promoting yeah. my book yeah and i had to get up at six in the morning and be on with all these people it was crazy yeah and they didn't know i was talking about mental health they didn't know that i was ready to do myself in yeah it was amazing right yeah so my wife said Honey, take like that. I said, I don't want to get addicted. Yeah. I don't want to get addicted. Yeah. And she goes, Honey, but you you're not you gotta sleep. Yeah. So I take the damn Xanax. It's the only thing. Yeah. But I was taking half a half a pill. Yeah, there were times I would take half too. That's right. I but the same thing. Just to just take the edge off. Right. Just to sleep. And I'm not promoting, you know, whatever works for you and go see a professional, go get professional Absolutely. help before you take Absolutely. the Xanax. Yeah. What I do now, and it's helped me. And I've been doing it for a while. Before, when I used to wake up, I would force myself to go back. To, I don't do that now. I, I just stay up and watch TV. Yeah. I don't think like, oh, I, I have to go to, I have to wake up at six in the morning to go to work. I go, okay, just watch TV. And then I fall asleep. Yeah. Yeah. That's I mean, whatever you need to do to get through it. This you know? is an interesting talk we're having here. Yeah. I, it's funny because I know the whole thing, I mean, obviously, state of mind. I know. No. I know. And you've been very open about what you've wrestled with in your life as far as your, your uh, yes. mental illness that you've struggled with. And I think that's freaking awesome. I mean, I, it's interesting, though, because especially since the pandemic and the shutdown, people are so much more filled with anxiety than before, you know. And Yvonne, my girlfriend, said, a few days, a few weeks ago, she said something that I thought really resonated with me and made sense. She said, you know, years ago, um, you would be hard pressed to find anybody who was not affected by cancer. OK, that either directly or or loved right. one, people around. And she said today it's suicide. <laughs> Honestly, it is. And I think that we all know people in our lives 
that have taken their lives, you know, yeah. and I, I've shared. And now you have story. a cousin, right? Uh, my cousin, my cousin Lauren, um, two years ago in July, um, she took her life. And I'll never forget my daughter, Sienna, it was in Bushwick uh, in Brooklyn. My daughter, Sienna, was like a sister to her that she moved to Brooklyn as well, like 12, 14 years ago. And they were like sisters. They loved each other very close. And I'll never forget the phone call when she called me from an Uber that she was on the way to where she had committed suicide. And she was sobbing, trying to talk. And I couldn't understand. I was like, Sienna, sweetie, I can't understand. What are you saying? She says, Lauren, Lauren killed herself. She killed herself. I'm like, what? What? She said, yeah, she killed herself. Did she, she did she admit? She, she suffered. It, it was, it was a, a accumulation of several things. Um, first of all, again, the shutdown. She was, she was a, a manager and bartender at a restaurant in Bushwick for eight years, okay? okay. And she was very loved, very yeah. much loved from the people there. She loved her job. She, um, so when it shut down, she wasn't working for months, okay, up until that time. And she, it was also she and her boyfriend, Arthur, they were together for 13 years, and they had broken up like a couple months before that. So and it was like the financial aspect of it, her living situation, um, she was, you know, crutching on, on drugs and alcohol too. Okay. And the depression, she got into a deep depression and she took her life. And it just, you know, when that happens, it's, it's a scar. It's an open wound. It's not, it doesn't even have the chance to scab up. It just literally is an open wound, um, that's exposed to the yeah. elements of everyday living for each person that's left behind. You think in those terms, I, I know that my uncle John, even my love, he's like a brother to me too. I, he and I are only two years apart. We grew up together, you know, and he was also an inspiration for me in music. He plays guitar, he plays bass. And, um, so we've been very close and it's for him, it's changed his life immeasurably. He can't, you know, he's, he's doing great, but he's also become a strong champion as well. Awareness of mental illness as yeah. a result of this. And it's great to see she was so loved from the people in the community of Bushwick and that the restaurant that everybody knew her, that there was a famous um, muralist, um, this woman, her last name is Salva. I saw the mural. Yeah, she, she painted it's murals amazing. in Bushwick of Lauren. And also in the restaurant, there's one there, there's one on the streets of Bushwick, a whole block practically. Yeah. And there was a bar in um, New Orleans that was her favorite bar, uh, Lauren, that this the woman went down to um, to New Orleans and painted a mural there too, of her of Lauren, and it's a to bring awareness of That's mental amazing. illness. That's amazing. Um, so and even like the friends of hers in Bushwick, they got together and they they uh, they paid for a bench in her favorite park and put a plaque for her there of her name and her life and everything. And um, so it was really tough. My daughter to this day, I mean, the impact that it had on her was it ultimately became much more positive because my daughter now has been um, sober drive for over a year. And it was, yeah. she was inspired by what happened to her cousin. Yeah. Yeah. Um, she decided, you know what, I'm going to do this. I'm going to, I'm going to go into a program and, and clean myself up. And she's doing amazingly well. She just passed a year about a month ago, a little over a month ago. Wow. So she's very, she looks great. She's healthy. She's focused. Um, and I'm so proud of her. I'm proud of her that she that's, was able to do that. That's the gift. Yeah, yeah. That yeah. she left, left her that yeah. gift. And the reminder of her presence also all around Bushwick, which is pretty freaking awesome. You know, the pen, you know, I, 
this is for me a fact that the you know and i've been speaking for like over 30 years on on this but i've never seen it like it is now there's a there's an awareness because of the pandemic pandemic and the suicides yeah have helped mental health yeah and see that i have not seen it ever yeah. and i we know like and i don't want to say like but after i did oprah i thought there was going to be this thing of mental it just mm -hmm. only the pandemic because we're living we're forced we can't hide right right so if you don't know what this feels like and and now you're feeling stuff you can't go and uh and and, and get fixed on your own you're inside a house with people yeah now you have to deal with it true and it has helped especially i was very grateful that during the shutdown that I was living out here in Los Angeles. I was living in, oh, okay. in Woodland Hills and Calabasas. I was very grateful for that because if I was living in New York City Ooh. in an apartment Ooh. building, enclosed, oh, no, no, that no. that would have been too much no, for no. me because I would have gotten really claustrophobic. It would have really weighed upon me, my psyche You're at that time. Right, yeah. Um, I, so I was grateful that I had the opportunity to walk out my door, get my car, drive up to the hills and go hiking in the hills, you know, by myself, yeah. you know, or walk down beaches by myself, yeah. you know, with my girlfriend, whatever we, we would go up th these hill, these hills overlooking Calabasas, this crest up there and go up there with beach chairs, sit there with a bottle of wine and watch the sunsets, yeah. you know, yeah. and it was beautiful, but it wasn't, we weren't surrounded by people, but we had at least the outdoors. And it was for our state of mind, our mental health as well, you know, just yeah. to feel that we weren't so, because yeah. it was such an intense time anyway to see the whole world shut down like that. And for people that are struggling with mental illness, oh. especially in, the, in a, an urban area like in New York City, that would have been too intense for me, frankly. I think that would have really made it much more difficult for me. It would have. Yeah. And for me, I was in prison in here. Yeah. And, uh, I think we 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 we're gonna conclude it now, brother. But this has been phenomenal. Okay, yeah, absolutely. Jesus, I don't know what I expected from Vincent. Um, I'm very emotional right now. Just to we hit to some levels of depth that was interesting to me, and uh, touch something cool. Yeah, touch some chords. It was cool. It was very cool. Yeah, very. Uh, maybe because I was his fan for so long. Oh, I'm talking about. <laughs> but anyway, uh, thank you for coming, man. Uh, it, thank it you for great. having me, Maurice. I mean, it's it's nice to finally meet you. Yeah. and be able to get to know each other because we've <laughs> known each other from afar. Really, I know. Yeah. We really haven't met each other personally on any yeah. level. So this is great. I. I'm very, I'm very grateful that you invited me to come and be a part of this, man. This is very cool. All right, bro. Absolutely. Thank you, man. Thank Pleasure. Thank you for joining me for another episode. Please be sure to download, subscribe, and leave a review.